0: And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything. Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So, listen and subscribe to This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to Historical Blindness, the odd past podcast. If you're sitting at your desk or on a couch you might consider visiting our website, historicalblindness.com, and following along with this episode's blog entry, where you can see images and follow links to sources. However, if you are operating a vehicle, please do not browse and drive. In our previous episodes, we have delved into a passage of history to which many have turned a blind eye, and another which remains a blind spot in our knowledge of the past. In this installment, we'll examine one of the most puzzling medical mysteries of the ages, one which is often dismissed by those whom science has blinded. Thank you for joining us for this fourth episode, The Dancing Plague. To be certain, the Middle Ages were a high time for mysterious illnesses. The most commonly known illness of the era, the Black Plague, certainly seemed mysterious during its horrific reign across Europe. How were the physicians of that time to ascertain that the buboes, the hot and tender egg-like protuberances swelling on the necks, groins, and armpits of the infected, from which the term bubonic is derived? were rising from the bites of fleas carrying the disease from rats to humans. Thinking the disease to be spread through corrupted air, they prescribed relocation. And of course, this was effective since distance from the rats and their fleas meant less chance of being bitten. However, this diaspora also resulted in the spread of the disease. Quite often, the reason why a cure proved effective was just as mysterious as the illness itself. Like the bubonic plague, many of the most mysterious illnesses of the medieval period were characterized by horrible boils and sores, such that it almost seemed like a succession of biblical plagues. In Paris, in 945 CE, An epidemic of such pustules, later called St. Anthony's Fire, spread and could only be cured by Hugh the Great, Duke of the Franks and Count of Paris, who held a stockpile of palliative holy grains at St. Mary's Church. It has since become clear that St. Anthony's fire was spread by the ingestion of grains corrupted by ergot fungus, so the grains of Hugh the Great were holy and restorative only insofar as they were not poisonous. Other mysterious diseases presenting separating sores likewise elicited some odd treatments. Water elf disease, which may have been something similar to endocarditis, was thought to be caused by the stab of a witch, and sufferers sought relief through song. Then there was the king's evil, a scrofulous infection of the lymph nodes that presented with swollen masses on the neck, similar to buboes, that was believed to be curable by the mere touch of a monarch. However, a king was not about to go around laying bare hands on the afflicted, so instead, kings were known to touch coins, which were then given to the infected as so-called touch pieces to rub on their sores. One such mysterious illness that spread festering boils across Europe was known as the French disease, as it appeared to have been transmitted by the French to the Italians during the 1493 Siege of Naples. This medieval illness, however, persisted into the early modern era and beyond, eventually coming to be known as the sexually transmitted infection syphilis. And syphilis was not alone in surviving the Middle Ages. There was another holdover plague, with a much longer history that reappeared in the 16th century. This one, however, caused no boils, no sores. Instead, it caused an ecstasy, though not in the euphoric sense. Rather, this was the ecstasy of a frenzied trance that eventually broke the body and killed the sufferer. In the Alsatian city of Strasbourg, on the Rhine River, a city renowned as the home of Johannes Gutenberg's revolutionary movable-type printing press, and of the tallest building in the world, Strasbourg Cathedral, a strange occurrence transpired in the summer of 1518. Among narrow streets choked with pedestrian traffic and mongers of every stripe, a Hausfrau by the name of Trophia began to dance. No strains of music were heard to prompt her rhythmic motions. Indeed, by one subsequent report, her husband had just instructed her to perform a task she did not desire to do, and he stood in exasperation, demanding to no avail that she cease her antics. Thus, as Frau Trophia continued her silent and solitary dance, it was at first dismissed by onlookers as a domestic squabble. One can imagine the dance itself as commencing slowly, almost lazily, with some swaying motions and fluid movements of the limbs. Soon, though, the motions became more energetic, her tempo increasing, and despite her husband's pleas, she remained impassive, as if entranced. As minutes then turned to hours and her dance continued, onlookers gathered. It is not recorded whether her husband remained in concern or left in anger at her behavior. What is known is that while some among her audience still believed her to be acting out in defiance of her husband, Others began to think something more sinister was at work. As fatigue set in, her dancing grew more violent and fitful, almost like contortions, and some began to suggest she was possessed by a demon. She had not eaten or taken water and was drenched in sweat. Eventually, she collapsed, but her strange episode was not over. When she awoke, she stood slowly and began again her dance macabre. This continued, depending on the source, for four to six days. Before growing crowds of spectators, she danced herself bruised and bloody, fainting occasionally in exhaustion, only to resume her stuporous cavorting upon waking. By the time authorities stepped in and took Frau Trophia away, the consensus seemed to be that her ecstasy was inspired or perhaps inflicted by God rather than by the devil. Thus she was carted off to a nearby shrine, where indulging in such holy paroxysms was deemed more seemly. However, that was not the last that Strasbourg would see of the dancing disorder that afflicted Frau Trophia. Mere days after Trophia's initial dance, some 34 other sufferers appeared, compelled to dance non-stop, unto exhaustion, injury, and in some cases, death. That's right, it is recorded that many danced themselves into the grave that hot summer in Alsace. And as the number of manic dancers grew, the populace began to fear it was a plague, perhaps inflicted by God himself as a punishment for their sins. With fear and paranoia growing, and every day more dancers filling the streets, the governing body of Strasbourg, a combined privy council called the 21, composed mostly of guild leaders, was obliged to do something. At first, there was a strong debate in council meetings. Men of the cloth and physicians squared off, the former suggesting such explanations as possession or divine punishment and the latter dismissing such possibilities in favor of far more rational explanations, such as that the afflicted suffered from blood that had grown too hot. As they squandered time on debate, however, the outbreak spread. When there were more than a hundred dancers, the council finally took action, opening two guild halls, those of the dyers and the carpenters, for the shelter of the afflicted. Acting on the advice of physicians first, who suggested the dancing was actually providing a natural relief for some physiological disorder, the council paid unaffected citizens to stay and dance with them, and even contracted musicians to fill the guild halls with the rousing music of drums and fifes to better facilitate their dancing. In effect, they threw them a big party. But this did not achieve their desired results, for none of the afflicted were cured of the urge to dance. In fact, it appeared to exacerbate the trouble, as many in the guild halls died from dance, and others, presumably the paid chaperones, or even, perhaps, passers by, enamored of the music and dancing in the halls, became infected themselves, and thus the plague spread. In response to this clear failure to address the problem, the Council of Twenty-One took a different approach, issuing statutes that today sound like something out of the classic 80s film Footloose. There shall be no music in their city, they decreed, on penalty of a 30 shilling fine. While exception was made for good upstanding folk celebrating weddings or observing mass, Even then, music would have to be limited to stringed instruments without the accompaniment of such tempting rhythms as tambourines and drums offered. And to complete their moral legislation, the council even banished quote-unquote loose persons. But thankfully, only temporarily. When the enforced absence of song still didn't settle the swinging hips and limbs of all the poor dancing maniacs on the floor the council resorted to more religious remedies. In a final recourse, they ordered all uninfected guild members to take up the dancers in their halls, lay them bodily onto several large wagons, and tie them down, for the stricken were to make a forced pilgrimage to the shrine of St. Vitus at Severn. With these wagons overladen with bound and writhing forms, they did just that creaking along some 25 miles of road, slowly, one might imagine, and up a narrow path to the cave on a promontory where the shrine was kept. There the dancers jigged their way inside and fell prostrate before the image of St. Vitus. A mass was then said over them, and to calm their tapping toes, each was given a pair of red shoes that had been blessed with the sign of the cross and anointed with oil. And this, oddly enough, appeared to do the trick. As many as 400 were said to have been afflicted with the dancing plague that summer, and the pilgrimage seemed to help many of them recover. This earned the condition the name Saint Vitus's Dance. Perhaps because it became widely believed that the saint could help, or because they suspected someone had cursed the afflicted in the saint's name or because the supposed plague had been sent as a punishment by St. Vitus for not venerating him enough. Religious tradition describes St. Vitus as a 3rd century Sicilian child, who after converting to Christianity against his affluent family's wishes, performed several miraculous healings through the laying on of hands. Hagiography has him healing paralysis and blindness and other conditions that led to the modern conception of him as the patron saint of neurological disorders. Supposedly boiled in a cauldron while still a child by an emperor's son whom, according to the legend, he had just healed of demonic possession, after his martyrdom and eventual canonization, his relics came to be most associated with healing illnesses, presenting quote, unsteady step and trembling limbs," unquote, among other forms of lameness. Thus the Strasbourgians' supposition that this particular saint might help their dance-mad citizens, and thus Saint Vitus' reputation as a patron saint of dance. Since the Strasbourg epidemic, Saint Vitus's dance is known to have had some recurrences elsewhere in Europe during the 16th century, sometimes in a recurring form, wherein sufferers fall prey to the dancing urge every summer around the same time and must make their pilgrimage to a shrine of St. Vitus annually. But never again has such a rampant outbreak occurred. What really happened on the unsinkable Titanic? What made the 1904 St. Louis Marathon the strangest event in Olympic history? Whatever became of missing boy Bobby Dunbar? And who was the child who returned in his place? If these questions interest you, check out the History Uncovered podcast, brought to you by the digital publisher of All That's Interesting. History Uncovered explores the strange and obscure parts of history that you definitely didn't learn about in school. Hosted by the writers and editors of All That's Interesting, the show covers a wide variety of topics ranging from the forgotten media spectacle of cave explorer Floyd Collins' death to the disappearance and possible cannibalization of Michael Rockefeller to the true story that inspired The Exorcist. With more than 100 episodes, you're bound to find that they've covered a topic that's especially interesting to you. And each month, they produce a special History Happy Hour episode examining recent news in the fields of world history and archaeology and commemorating important historical anniversaries. Come explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past by listening to History Uncovered, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Do you find yourself captivated by the inexplicable, entranced by enigmas, and tantalized by the unknown? We are Shane and Josh Waters, brothers who will weave you through tales that have mystified us for years. From haunted hotels to inexplicable disappearances. Our episodes offer you a panoramic view of the world's greatest mysteries, leaving no stone unturned, no clue unnoticed. With a gripping narrative, we invite you to join us on a journey into realms of the unexplained. We're unraveling the mysteries that have perplexed humanity for ages. So, armchair detectives, curious minds, and seekers of the strange, it's time to put on your headphones and dim the lights. Dive into the uncanny world of the Mystery Inc. podcast and prepare for a journey into the unknown that you'll never forget. And remember, some mysteries are better left unsolved, but not unexplored.
1: years afterward, even unto the modern day, there has been much debate as to the causes of this phenomenon, whether it be a supernatural affliction, a true physiological illness, or a psychogenic complaint. In other words, was it a curse, a sickness, or a madness? In weighing all these possibilities, however, one must consider the long history of dancing sickness throughout the Middle Ages leading up to the Strasbourg outbreak. Among the oldest accounts of a dancing mania was one, which may be entirely fabular or merely embellished from fact, that took place in Eastern Saxony, in a district of Bernberg, called Kolbeck. The year has been variously reported as 1013, 1015, 1017, and 1021, but clearly it can be narrowed down to the early 11th century, What is consistent in the story is that, one Christmas Eve, a group gathered in a churchyard and kicked up such a racket with their singing and dancing as to upset the church's priest, who was at the time trying to proceed with Mass. According to the most detailed account I could find, it was at the Church of St. Magnus the Martyr, and those gathered there were carolers of a sort, in that they sang corolla, or ballads, one of which reportedly included the lyrics Quote, why do we stand, why do we not move, Unquote. And move they did, holding hands and jumping and dancing in a circle that the priest of Saint Magnus called a, quote, ring dance of sin, Unquote. Like any old fuddy-duddy upset at the noise, the priest came out to complain, and when they would not quiet, he cursed them. Counterintuitively, however, he cursed them to continue dancing, unceasingly, for an entire year. And legend has it, this is just what they did, leaping and spinning in their circle, day and night. They took no food or water until the spell was broken on the following Christmas Eve, at which time they fainted dead away, and slumbered for days, some expiring in their sleep. Those who survived suffered painful spasms for years, and were reduced to alms-begging paupers. Now, of course, this story is unbelievable in more than one respect, but it can't be dismissed entirely as it was not to be the last instance of this phenomenon. For example, in the independent German city of Erfurt, in either the year 1237, 1247, or 1257, depending on the source, a great many children, from at least 100 to over a thousand, gathered in the streets, singing and dancing uncontrollably, and proceeded out the city gates, dancing some 12 miles all the way to the walls of Arnstadt, where, their energy depleted, they fell asleep and were retrieved by their worried families. It has been reported that, similar to other outbreaks of a dancing plague, some of the children died in the grips of this mania, and the survivors afterward suffered enduring symptoms, including lethargy and trembling in the extremities. Some have speculated that this incident inspired the legend of the Pied Piper of Hamelin, although Hamelin is around 130 miles northeast of this vicinity. Some 20 to 40 years later, in Maastricht, 1278, around 200 people danced uncontrollably on a bridge that suddenly buckled and cast them into the waters of the Meuse to drown. Thereafter, in 1374, a major spate of occurrences erupted in Aachen and spread east to Cologne, west to Ghent, and north and south into the Netherlands and France. From this outbreak, we have disturbing reports of the afflicted shrieking in pain and screaming out while they danced that they were dying. It was thus assumed to be an epidemic of mass demonic possession, and exorcists kept busy that year, shouting their incantations and throwing the plague's victims into baths of holy water. Some of the dancers, it is said, even cried out the name of their demonic tormentor, friskes. It can be surmised that this is where the verb frisk, meaning to frolic playfully, originated, as well as the word frisky, meaning lively and playful. So next time your puppy or your children are jumping about with a surfeit of energy, you might want to cast out the demon Friscus, just to be sure. Further outbreaks of the dancing plague were few and far between for the next century. Early in the 15th century, a monk danced until he died at the Benedictine Monastery of St. Agnes at Schaffhausen and an assemblage of ladies went into an extended dance frenzy at the Water Church in Zurich. And in 1463, a great number of manic dancers came in a hopping, gamboling pilgrimage to the shrine of Eberhard Sklausen, near Trier. These pilgrims, some of whom had been suffering their condition six months, danced so vigorously that they were known to have broken ribs with their strenuous movements. But as in other recorded instances, they felt compelled to dance in order to combat a deep, physical pain they felt. They danced until they collapsed in fatigue, but leapt back into action if one poured wine on them. As in the Strasbourg epidemic of the next century, they associated their condition with a particular saint, this time Saint John likely because many claimed to have had a vision of his severed head during their frenzies, and appealed to his image for a cure. Thus the alternative name for St. Vitus's dance, St. John's dance. And in another connection to the Strasbourg contagion, there appeared to be some odd correlation between the condition and the color red. If you recall, 55 years later, red shoes appeared to help cure the Strasbourgians. In Trier, in 1463, the dancing pilgrims of St. John, reportedly, were not able to see the color red. Therefore, by some logic that surely seemed sound at the time, they wore red coral around their necks as amulets, and even ingested potions containing powdered red coral. Considering this long history throughout the Middle Ages prior to the Strasbourg Incidents, it should come as no great surprise that the Dancing Plague may not have entirely disappeared after its brief resurgence in early modern Europe. In the 1730s, at a cemetery in Paris, among followers of a heretical sect called Jansenism, who made daily pilgrimages to the grave of a revered ascetic, where it was rumored miraculous cures had been performed, a remarkable phenomenon was recorded. These pilgrims began to contort themselves and experience convulsions, thus their strikingly cool name, the Convulsionaires and they are often associated with the Dancing Plague because their convulsions took on the cast of dance. The differences, however, were manifold. Beyond spasms and dancing, the convulsionaires were also said to sing, shout prophecies, speak in tongues, and bark like animals. Moreover, they claimed to be able to produce their convulsions on command, and instead of asserting that their movements helped abate some pain they were feeling, they rather declared that their convulsions allowed them to withstand any pain someone might inflict upon them. To prove it, they encouraged onlookers to do violence on them, and according to some accounts, they did indeed seem immune to harm while in their ecstatic throes, withstanding strangulation, bludgeoning by various objects, and even attacks with blades. And to top off these incredible claims, the convulsionaires were supposedly witnessed levitating. Authorities closed the cemetery to restore order, but the convulsionaires took to the streets and their condition seemed contagious, with some reports numbering them in the thousands. While this affair certainly has its dissimilarities from previous dance outbreaks, it is the same in that eventually it died away. Not so another compulsive dance craze, this one in Italy, and somehow far more disturbing, at least to me, than any that preceded it. As far back as the 14th century it was recorded, and further study and definition of the condition took place during the 1600s and 1700s. The condition is known as tarantism, and it is thought to proceed from the venomous bite of the dreaded tarantula spider. The preferred treatment? Music. The sufferer, or tarantata, after experiencing some of the obvious symptoms of venomous bites, swelling and difficulty breathing, will leap into dance when music is played. Therefore, we have some clear similarities with St. Vitus' dance and previous dance plagues. Dance as a means of relief from physical pain, music having a clear effect, although here it is seen as ameliorative, and perhaps most unsettling, possession being blamed. You see, the Tarantata is said to be possessed by the spirit of the offending spider, and the music and dance are a means of exorcism. Indeed, their dance was a kind of imitation of the tarantula, arching their backs and clambering on all fours, up walls and across floors. The musicians became folk healers in this situation, and their skills on violin and tambourine were tested, for they had to play an improvised sort of music that anticipated the bizarre spider-like movements of their patients in order to successfully banish the spirit of the tarantula. As seen in St. John's dance and St. Vitus's dance, the symptoms of Tarantism did not always disappear for good, but rather returned every year around the same time with haunting dreams and hallucinations of spiders, necessitating an annual pilgrimage to a church in Galatina to entreat Saint Paul for mercy. Paul, having himself survived a snake bite, is considered, among other things, patron saint of those suffering from venomous bites. Astoundingly, Belief in Tarantism persisted well into the 20th century. Only recently has it seemed to perish with the last of the pilgrims to Galatina. And what remains are legends and relics of the past, including the peculiar style of music said to cure the condition, bisica and the dance itself, which has evolved from the spider-like crawling of its origins into the whirling dance known as the Tarantella. What in the past might have been diagnosed as Tarantism, might today be considered a neurological condition, and this is true of the dancing plague generally. Ask a doctor, and he or she would likely suggest these were episodes of epileptic seizure that were not understood at the time or those well-versed in history might dismiss it as Sydenham's chorea, an older diagnosis that, like epilepsy, attempts to define the condition in terms of spasms and unsteady movement. While some neurological explanation might seem likely, especially when considering the strange repetition of details having to do with the perception of the color red, weighing all evidence, such diagnoses seem reductive in that they describe only convulsion, rather than actual dance, and do not account for the contagion that seems evident in the record. And in fact, it has been noted that as far back as the 1463 outbreak of St. John's Dance, epilepsy was a known condition called, the falling sickness, and the dancing plague was viewed as a clearly different illness. Another popular theory is that of ergotism. Recall my earlier account of St. Anthony's fire as an illness caused by fungus on grain and cured by receiving untainted grain from a church's stores? Well, it turns out the fungus ergot can also cause convulsive seizures and mania. This explanation, combined with religious fervor and legend, does seem to best explain the phenomenon. Consider, for example, the fact that the only known cure was a pilgrimage to a church or shrine, where perhaps they received untainted grains. However, one of the foremost scholars on this topic, John Waller, has pointed out that ergotism might cause convulsions and hallucinations but that it is not known to have ever caused the sustained rhythmic motions described so consistently in the historical record. Moreover, he points out that people do not react so uniformly to ergot poisoning. And surely if ergotism were the cause, there would have also been reports of the gangrenous form, Saint Anthony's fire, which there was not. And again, he demonstrates that the people of Alsace knew well the dangers of ergot, citing wooden pipes found in grain mills that were carved with contorted faces as a reminder of the risk of tainted flour. Familiar as they were, they still saw St. Vitus's dance as a plague altogether distinct from ergotism. And who are we, in the modern day, to gainsay their first-hand knowledge? Hence Waller's own theory that most, if not every, instance of the dancing plague can be attributed to mass psychogenic illness, perhaps more popularly known under the umbrella term mass hysteria. In other words, it was all in their heads. The spread of the dance would thus be simply attributed to the power of suggestion, and the religious aspects of the condition and its supposed cure can be understood as part of the religious mysticism common in that era. The entire phenomenon, then, is explicable as a sociological trend. To me, though, this rationalization disappoints. There seems to be no more concrete evidence for this explanation than there is for the idea that it truly was an enigmatic disease that subsequently disappeared. And when prominent mysterious happenings in the past can be so effortlessly disregarded as mass hysteria, it may lead to a serious case of historical blindness. You're listening to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past Podcast. This episode was written, performed, mixed, and engineered by me, Nathaniel Lloyd. If you enjoyed the program and would like to hear more thought-provoking stories from our shared past, please subscribe and spread the word by leaving us a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, as well as by sharing the program with any friends you think might enjoy it. Visit the website at historicalblindness.com to dig further into each story and find other products, such as links to my historical novel, Manuscript Found. The novel explores the beginning of Mormonism from a skeptic's perspective, and I'm more than excited to finally be sharing it with the world. Before our next episode, it should be up on Amazon and on our website at historicalblindness.com books. At the bottom of the page, you'll find links to stay up-to-date with our latest installments, products, and recommendations by subscribing to our RSS feed or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you feel moved to support our program and make it possible for us to release installments more frequently, you'll also find a page at historicalblindness.com donate where you can contribute a one-time donation or pledge recurring support through Patreon. All donations contribute directly to the composition and production of the program, and with enough listener support, a more frequent release schedule would be possible. I would like to end this episode by making a few podcast recommendations to my listeners. For those of you who like irreverent humor and yearn for a truthful take on current events in the post-truth era, check out Armchair Blasphemy on iTunes, hosted by my good friend Edwin Lingard. And for further humorous conversation with an Australian perspective on history and all kinds of topics, check out The Markham Society. That's M-A-R-K-H-A-M. The Markham Society with Albie T. Grace and Daniel Clark as they demand constant research. Again, I would like to thank the Facebook group's podcasts we listen to, as well as Just History Podcasts and History Podcasts, in addition to the Humanities Podcasters Twitter network, for their help in expanding my listener base. Search hashtag Humanities Podcasts on Twitter and ask to join those Facebook groups to take part in the conversation. That's it for this episode of Historical Blindness. Keep an eye out for our next episode, and thanks again for listening.
0: History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous Reign of Terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.